Hey guys, welcome back to The Courier Weekly. I'm Danny Giacopelli, Courier's Editorial Director. If you're new here to the show, or to Courier, we're all about telling amazing stories of modern business, basically showing you how to work better and live smarter. This week on the show, we talk olive oil and video meetings, but not in the same conversation. First up, we're in Los Angeles. It's pretty likely that you know of Brightland, one of the most buzzy and talked about olive oil brands on the market. Aishwarya Iyer previously spent a decade working in the tech and VC world, until at some point, she and her husband started to get into cooking and realized that crappy olive oil was making them sick. She soon discovered that the origins, supply chain, and labeling for lots of olive oil was all over the place and pretty shady. Lo and behold, a new business idea fell from the sky. Aishwarya now runs Brightland, and she works with a farming partner in California where the olives are grown. I caught up with her to find out how she's grown the company and how she's launched a new product line during the pandemic. I was living in New York City. I lived in New York for about 10 years. And the first eight years, I can probably count the number of times that I really, you know, spent time in my kitchen. And I had a spreadsheet of over 600 restaurants. And, you know, I was that New Yorker. Around year eight of just bopping around the city and all of that, I started spending more time at home and cooking more and got into a serious relationship. And both my partner and I noticed that we kept getting stomach aches every time that we cooked at home. And at first, and it was just, you know, this like slight discomfort, nothing too alarming, but enough to, you know, cause attention and and give us some pause. So we started eliminating certain things like bread and cheese, and we even cut out spices. And eventually the only constant that was left, and we talked to a couple of nutritionist friends, was the cooking oil we were using. And until then, you know, I had never given olive oil or cooking oil, any type of oil or really a pantry kind of foundational food, any sort of second thought. But I did a little bit of research. I was using olive oil at the time. So I, you know, Googled bad olive oil or something. And what showed up was that there is a massive problem across the world, actually. This is a global issue where there's a slew of rancid, rotten product out there in the ether. (laughs) And by ether, I mean supermarkets and places where we're all shopping. Consumers have just been kind of buying what they think is labeled extra virgin olive oil, but actually doesn't qualify to be that. And 60 Minutes had done, you know, a pretty big piece about this. And there's even some kind of conversations around a lot of kind of food fraud and the Italian mafia being involved. So there's a lot of scandal and kind of intrigue plaguing this industry. Yeah, I've read all about the counterfeit olive oil coming out of, well, nobody really knows where it originates from, right? No one really knows where it originates from. And I think that at the end of the day, I think there's a miseducation around the concept of olive oil. Like olive oil is a living, breathing, it is pressed from a fruit, which is the olive. And it should not go through massive amounts of processing. And after that, I think it's really important to remember that it is something that ages and doesn't age well. Like it's not a wine. It's actually going to degrade in quality. So I think that that's a huge piece that I think a lot of people don't necessarily think about. And then that it has some very clear enemies like light, heat, and air. And I think when you get caught up in, you know, oh, I want it to be in a clear bottle because that's prettier, 
what you end up doing is you're not really providing integrity to the actual product. And I think that's happening at a pretty large scale too. So you noticed all of this and, you know, lo and behold, you turned what you saw a gap in the market into, I mean, at the time, did you think, you know, two years from now, I'd be running a fast growing direct to consumer olive oil brand? Never, never, no. I actually was thinking about doing a certification program. I thought that maybe a chef or a restaurateur should be, you know, pursuing this project. So I didn't think that I would be the one to do it. I didn't come from a background in food. So I didn't think I had a place or a a space that I could carve out for myself. And then when I moved to California in 2016, I started visiting olive farms just on the weekends out of just fun and curiosity. And I didn't know, I didn't really understand the kind of the burgeoning industry that's here and was so delighted by the quality and the conversation and just the promise for, you know, what I saw was really, really interesting. Like it reminded me of what the wine industry must have been like in the 70s in California. So just having these similar conversations brought back some of those feelings. Then I said, you know, maybe there's something that I can do here. I wasn't sure, like I didn't go into like a business plan and funding. Like I took some of my savings and said, okay, let me see, let me just do a first run and let me try to find the right farm partner that I think aligns with what this company's values are going to be. And let's take it day by day after that. Now, obviously, Brightland is seemingly everywhere. I mean, it's all over Instagram. It's on best of lists. You know, you're in the New York Times. I guess a question that I'm keen to know is, how does one brand go down a path that gets quite a lot of exposure and, you know, just press time and is out there and people know about it and they write about it? And how does a brand not get that? Because what you're doing is, you know, it's olive oil and you've made olive oil, surprisingly, you've made olive oil like a sexy thing, a cool product. What do you account for that besides just hard work and stamina? I think it's such a blend of things. It can't be just one thing. And I think anytime someone says that's the one thing that's either going to get you sales or press or quote unquote success, I think that's very dangerous and I wouldn't trust that (laughs) candidly, but... I think it's such a mix of things. I think it was the story we told. I think it's my story when I talk about getting stomach aches. Like we've had so many customers reach out and say that they were getting stomach aches and then they tried Brightland and that their stomach aches went away. So I think it's, you know, the story and just why I started it. I think that it's our packaging that serves well in terms of being a bit memorable and being something that people enjoy placing in their kitchens. I've heard a lot that people you know, pre-COVID would have, you know, dinner parties and would have people over and the Brightland bottles, if they were at the table, became a topic of conversation. I think there's that piece of it. Yeah. I mean, it's a physically beautiful thing. So, I mean, that obviously doesn't hurt whatsoever. I think that that definitely doesn't hurt. And then I think that ultimately the product has to speak for itself. So I think that it can be very easy to put something beautiful, like you can take something subpar and dress it up with pretty packaging or even build a beautiful website. And maybe you can get that first sale, but to get people to actually be, you know, we have nearly 200 five-star reviews that are real. And, you know, I'm always shocked they come in. I see them as they come in. They come in through my email too. And I'm always shocked that everyone that I open, because it's people, I don't know who they are. They're our customers. 
but they say, I'm floored at how this tastes and it has changed how I think about cooking or it's changed how I think about eating. And that is so powerful and so amazing to, to see. And I'm still constantly floored by that. So I think it's that. I think it's, you know, my background. I worked in corporate communications and public affairs, mainly for like fintech and consumer technology companies, but I still had that like baseline of understanding storytelling and narrative building. So I think I valued PR in a way that maybe I wouldn't have if I hadn't had that background. So it's that too. How has the pandemic changed things for you? It's changed every company and every brand in the world in different ways. How has it changed Brightland? Oh my goodness. The first thing we did was we, of course, shut down our office and said, okay, everyone's going to work from home. I had just signed a two-year lease for a new office space. So the very first thing I did was actually, we hadn't moved in yet. We were supposed to move in April. And I emailed them and said, I'd like to cancel and get out of this lease. And just in such a fortunate way, they said yes to that. And so I wriggled out of that lease. And I think quickly thereafter, we saw quite a few wholesale cancellations from larger retailers. So that was one kind of domino that fell. And then another domino was we saw restaurants, local and sort of around the country, start reaching out and saying that they're developing a pantry program and they'd love to carry Brightland. So that was another piece. And then for us, we just took a step back and thought a lot about like, what do we think people kind of need right now or could potentially enjoy right now? So we put together a, and launched a digital content series called On the Bright Side. And it featured conversations with, you know, folks in natural wine and conversations about cheese, topics that were ancillary to Brightland. Like, of course, we also had like cooking episodes. We got a lot of really nice feedback about that. But even that, I think, was such an evolution. Like, you know, social media definitely like exhausts me more than it invigorates or energizes me. And I had to like put press pause on it multiple times because it got to be a very like exhausting exercise, that content series. Yeah, those are just like snippets of what the pandemic kind of caused in our thinking and our way of navigating through it. Did you see a rise in sales or a drop in sales? Because obviously a lot more people were cooking at home full stop. But you know, I guess fewer people had disposable income to splurge on things like nice olive oil. So I'm wondering how your sales were. Yeah, we definitely saw a spike in sales. What about your business model? Because you guys have a really interesting model where you do sort of almost like streetwear drops. I mean, you say, you know, we're dropping vinegar now and then, you know, everybody rallies around it and buys it and then, you know, it's sold out. (laughs) (laughs) That's really a funny comparison. I I like that. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think for us, like we want to remind our customers and we want to remind people in general that there are humans working behind the scenes for this. And this is an agricultural product. And in order for us to do it right and do it with our values intact, like we're not going to just launch something with 100,000 units willy-nilly. Like this product wasn't just kind of made in a factory where it's just being churned out. Like there's harvest dates and there are fermenting times. And I think that's the thinking behind our launches. (laughs) Yeah. And I mean, it's been really interesting. Like we launched, you know, our hero products, the extra virgin olive oils first. And then we started launching flavored oils because A, that was something we were asked of quite a bit. And then B, I really wanted to celebrate artists 
And I thought a way to do that would be marry food and art together and kind of use the Brightland olive bottles as a canvas. And so we have commissioned various artists around the world who have worked with us on labels, special edition labels. And we've debuted like a spicy chili oil and a lemon oil and a basil infused oil. And then eight months ago, we started working on this vinegar situation. And that was, and I should add to the pandemic mix, like launching something in the midst of a pandemic or, you know, like kind of going through that supply chain operations process it's quite something. And I would say, you know, for any entrepreneur listening to this right now, if you're thinking about launching anything or you're working on it, yeah, definitely like buffer some extra time because just something so small is like, there's a photo shoot happening in two weeks. So you want to send your product to the photographers. Well, USPS here in the States is going through so many issues right now. We've sent product to photographers or, you know, other kind of partners and it's gotten lost more than one time. And then we've had to send again and then things get delayed because of that. So that's just a really simple example, but it's an example that has a severe domino effect of, you know, when you think you might launch something. Have there been any really truly like shit hitting the fan moments in the past couple months for you guys in terms of like a real major delay or a real snag or something where, you know, you thought it got a bit dicey? Yeah, definitely. We had some bottles, the olive oil bottles waiting for us. So we coat all of our bottles with a UV protected organic coating. And one of the coders is in Wisconsin. And the day that they coated them and they were about to ship to California to our olive farm, the day that they were about to ship, the Wisconsin governor announced the shutdown. And even though we're classified as an essential business because we're in the food business, that partner still shut their facility down. And so we had to scramble because they wouldn't reopen. We tried, you know, really anything we possibly could. And we had bottles that we needed. And so we were, you know, kind of scrambling left and right to figure out a solution. And that's just one kind of example. But that was so unexpected because we didn't know that that would be the day that they would announce the shutdown. And we also thought, you know, we're an essential business. I think we'll be okay. But I think you just learn so many things. And this is so unprecedented. Yeah. And the situation is still so fluid, especially in the U.S. with openings and reopenings. What about the situation in California? So you grow, obviously, the olives. Who is actually the farmer and do you own that land and, and what's the situation? We have a farm partner we work with. We have a very close relationship with them. They're a family farm, so it's a husband and wife owner. And they, fortunately, you know, they're in the central coast of California and it's not a dense area. So they've been, you know, practicing social distancing and doing what they can do, and they operate extremely lean. It's also not harvest time yet, so the olives are just growing and, and waiting to be picked later in November. What other challenges have you faced kind of growing, you know, a fast-growing, online-based food brand? I mean, shipping is always a challenge. Right now, USPS in the United States is just, I feel horribly for them. They're going through a lot, and I think packages are getting lost more than ever. I think there's really a kind of a cut down in service time and service, you know, from a postal worker standpoint. They're an integral part of our democracy and also, you know, our business. So we're seeing it on both fronts and feeling really badly. And that's a huge challenge. You know, it's not something that's sexy or talked about, but 
at the end of the day, your product needs to get shipped and arrived to your customer intact and in, on time, in a timely fashion. And, you know, customers are understanding and they understand that due to COVID there are delays, but with these USPS issues, we've never seen anything like this. Like things are showing up 10 days later than they normally do. And I don't know how that's going to really play out, especially as we approach the election and then holidays. And then I think, oh my goodness, like big picture, I think a lot of people think that we have, you know, raised millions of dollars and are this like fancy company that can just spend a lot of money. And I have to gently, like, I'm proud that we have built a brand that looks like that, but we are not like that. Yeah, it's really slick and polished. Thank you. But we are certainly not in that bucket. And so I think that's an opportunity and a challenge. And then I think the other opportunity and challenge is just that it's very noisy. And there's a lot of everything, especially on social media. So in order to truly stand out, you know, what do you have to do? How do you make sure that you're not overly inspired by somebody else doing something? Like, I think there's a lot of those kind of thoughts and conversations. You just see the vast wealth of brands out there in the food and drink space. It boggles the mind how all these brands could exist at the same time. And they all have, you know, quite similar branding. They're all millennial friendly. They're all Instagram native. And you're just like, something's got to break at some point. I mean, you know, there's just too many out there. I completely agree with you. That was Aishwarya Iyer from Brightland. Next up, Zoom, the video meetings platform that you've probably already used about 10 times today, has that rare cultural achievement of becoming a verb. Let me Zoom you. But it's not the only service of its kind. Today we're talking with Oyvind Reed. He's the CEO and co-founder of the Norwegian company Whereby, a web-based platform known for its privacy standards, which has grown hugely in recent months for obvious reasons. Oyvind caught up with me just a bit earlier from his home in Norway. We've had 4x revenue growth in four months. So it's just been absolutely crazy. And it's fascinating to me and all my colleagues to see how different and how changed the company is today compared to what it was just February, for instance. Because we saw things really starting to happen on February 25th of this year and just skyrocket, like traffic 30x increase quite clear that everyone needed a video conferencing service of some sort to basically be able to conduct their business in a a good fashion while sheltering in place. The word game-changing is often used a lot. I think for us, it's totally true. Do most of your users come from people who have tried your competitors like Zoom and have abandoned it? Or do they find you because they don't even want to attempt to go on Zoom and they find you as, you know, a good alternative to begin with? It's fair to say there's a combination of the two. We've seen tremendous growth from people that have had concerns around privacy, for instance, that goes just for Microsoft Teams, Google Meet, and Zoom. And we're seen as the European privacy-friendly alternative to big tech, which is a good position for us to be in, obviously. There are nuances to how the platform is being utilized, right? So one of the strengths of our platform, there is no download. You click that link and the video meeting is up. There is no need to book a meeting. You can just decide ad hoc to, hey, you want to jump on and hash this out? Fine, that link, and boom, you're in the meeting. So we've seen that there are actually different use cases that sets us aside from some of the more traditional players in this space. How did Zoom get to be the market leader so quickly? So few people were doing video conferencing before lockdown that it's just like all of a sudden 
this zoom word was everywhere and then bang it's just like it's become a verb now to like to zoom someone but i mean could that have been you or somebody else if you just did something a bit different back then i've been in the video conferencing industry for 10 years right everyone associated with the business has always said oh can't wait until video become pervasive but there's always been boundaries in place to stop that from happening the tech wasn't good enough companies didn't execute well enough so many different reasons why video never really took off in the first place. Obviously, people had Skype and so on, but it never really sort of like manifested itself in organizations. I think Zoom and I have tremendous respect for what they've done sort of like from an execution perspective. They were the first one to build tech that was reliable and stable. I think users really love that part of it. And I've always been amazed at how well they've executed their go-to-market strategy, for instance. So I think they're looking at Zoom and saying, okay, what are some of the things that we can learn and improve on? And where are the things that we don't want to do that I think Zoom has done that can take us in a different direction? So to answer your question, I think it's very well done what they have been able to do. And replicating that, by now, I think they're one of the fastest growing software companies ever, right? So I don't think anyone could have done that, to be truthful, right? That requires extreme execution and very strong strategy in play. Obviously, you guys must be hoping that more people stay remote working right now. I've seen a few companies in the past couple of days which have said, no more office ever again. It's remarkable, right? Yeah. I think we're all struggling to find out exactly what the new normal is going to be. But I think what we're all already seeing is that there at least will be some sort of hybrid situation between an office base and people working remotely. I think many people that have been working from home have seen that, okay, that actually can help reduce the stress. This uh, commuting two hours every single day into an office doesn't really make you very efficient, right? There's no doubt that there are better ways of doing things, especially for us fortunate enough to be working in tech and where our mind is basically our biggest tool, right? And, And when you've seen all these companies decide to make that shift, that's a huge step in a very radical direction, if you think about it, right? Telenor, one of our owners, just announced that 23,000 people will now have the option to decide wherever they want to work from. So I find that interesting. We're not just seeing this shift in startups and smaller companies such as us with 60 people, but you're seeing this massive shift in much larger corporations, and they're looking at better ways and new ways of allowing people the flexibility. And that's something that we as a company care deeply about. How do we give flexibility to our colleagues so they can perform at the highest level consistently while at the same time maintaining a very healthy lifestyle, have a healthy mind, and just thoroughly enjoy their life in total, combination of family and work. So what's the future of this sector? I mean, there must be tons of competitors piling in right now, surely, because this is just taking off the video teleconferencing and video meeting space. And also, what's the future of features for me as a, as a user of these things? Will there be crazy features introduced that allow me to do, you know, visit with my doctor, visit with my dentist, visit with, you know, whatever? A very good question. And I think that there is so many cool things happening in this space. Now, this market is now being flooded by anyone who wants to go and get started using a video platform. Problem is, though, that building a high-functioning, globally distributed video platform takes a lot of effort and a lot of great engineering power. So we've been fortunate enough to have some amazing engineers working on this for years, and they continue to do so every single day to improve it. So I think there's a block to barrier to entry there for, for many companies where it's easy to build something that you and I can use, but once you start really scaling, it becomes really complicated very fast. So I think you're going to see quite a few drop off because they just have completely underestimated that piece of it. However, what I think is the massive opportunity out today is that most use cases are under 
estimated in terms of how videos are set up today. If you look at Zoom and to a certain extent, whereby and many others, sometimes we're retrofitting our use case to just help someone to get something done over video. But I think that there is tremendous potential. So we're foreseeing a huge growth in our API platform where we allow other companies to take our video platform and embed it into their own workflows. Now, that could either be used for healthcare. We're massive in healthcare in Scandinavia, for instance, where companies are using us to facilitate doctor-patient meetings. And they will take care of the whole customer journey, but just then make sure that the video call is all taking place over whereby. And I think that we've just started to see the small shift in how different use cases can improve the experience for the user. Instead of saying everything has to be a Zoom call or everything has to be a whereby call, we have to cater and tailor the use cases to the specific needs of what you're trying to solve at any given moment. What about privacy, though, and security? I mean, one of the big criticisms of Zoom is that, you know, the Chinese government is listening in on you. You know, the boogeyman knows all of your calls and have transcripts and everything. If I'm talking about my personal health data, how do I know it's not going to get leaked somewhere at some point? Exactly right. And this is why investing in privacy and having a very, very clear, if you look at Whereby, for instance, and our privacy policy, that has been given a lot of praise because it's easy to understand and it's very clear how we use data. And I think that this is just going to explode in the time moving forward, right? People are starting to see that big tech might not have the best interest at heart, especially at all times. So vendors and service providers that can guarantee more privacy and security will have a competitive advantage. But that requires you to make some tough decisions on how you use that data. How do you track? How does that impact your revenue and your ability to convert a free user to a paying user, for instance? So the great part is that when you talk about the specific example of you as uh, in healthcare, very often all different parts of a solution would have to be certified by the healthcare provider before you can start using, right? And I think that's the way you have to do it, that we all go through then rigorous scrutiny so they can be very sure that the meetings that are taking place are safe and secure and that they are scrubbed after, right? So for instance, whereby we don't store any meetings. We don't store chat. We don't store video. We don't store audio. It's all deleted as soon as the, the meeting is done. But Zoom stores that? I'm unsure how Zoom, uh, so I wouldn't want to speak to or speak out of turn and to how exactly they do it. But there is no doubt that Zoom has had some really tough scrutiny on their security and their privacy. And I've seen that they're making massive steps to try and fix that. And then it's up to the consumers to say, okay, am I happy with the progress or do I think that I can find better alternatives? And that's it this week. Make sure to check out our latest print edition of the magazine, The Design Issue, all about how to make it work as a creative entrepreneur. And we've also launched our new Fresh Fund, a grant scheme for black business founders to start or supercharge a company with a bit of extra money. You can find details about both on our website, couriermedia.co. I'm Daniel Giacopelli. The Courier Weekly is back again next week. We'll see you then.